0: Good evening. My name is Joe and I have the honor privilege of preaching tonight. So let me pray as we as we get on to the text. Father, we thank you. You are a great God. We've just sung of how great you are. So Lord, I pray that in these next 30 minutes or so, would you quiet our hearts. You call us to be still and know that you are God. So would you help us to do that now. Father, help us to hear your word, the word of Christ. Help us to believe and lay hold of Christ in faith. Lord, I ask for your help to preach your word faithfully, clearly, and by your spirit with effect. So come now, Lord, we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. So this evening, we come to the end of the first major section of the book of Romans, and if you've been with us for the past number of weeks, you may recall that Paul began his letter to the Romans talking about how he's unashamed of the gospel. That is the message of God's power displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is able to save all people. This is the good news, right? That Jesus Christ saves us. But if the gospel is good news, it means that there must be some bad news too. If the gospel is about salvation, it raises the question, what do we need to be saved from? And Paul, from Romans 1.18 all the way to the end of the passage tonight, Romans 3.20, has been answering this question, what we need to be saved from. And he actually gave the answer very quickly in Romans 1.18, where he says that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what we need to be saved from is God's righteous and wrathful judgment. Why? Well, because there's ungodliness and unrighteousness in our lives. So Paul from one eighteen up to 3.20 He's been building his case that we are all sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, that statement, maybe you've heard before, it's a famous statement. It's actually the title to a sermon that a man, American theologian named Jonathan Edwards, preached way back in 1741. And in this sermon, Jonathan Edwards spoke of the realities of sin in our lives and in this world and the even greater, scarier reality of God's judgment that is coming upon this world because of sin. Now, I remember the first time that I heard of this sermon, I was in a high school English course, and we were assigned to read a portion of the sermon. Now, this was a public school, not a Christian school, and although I was a newly converted Christian and quite earnest in my faith, wanting to grow, I remember reading this and saying, how strange is this, right? This sounds like something from a bygone age, from the dark ages even. Well, I believe it's quite possible that for many of you, perhaps these last few weeks, you've felt the same way as we've been making our way through Romans 1, 2, and 3. These have been weighty and often dark chapters. We've been faced weak, after a week, with these hard statements about our sinfulness, both as men and women, Jews and Gentiles, and about the reality of God's judgment and his wrath. Right? Let's be honest. These are not popular topics. They're not trending these days. These are not easy things to speak about, especially in our own day and time. And one of the reasons It's not easy to talk about these things or to hear them is because many of us from all over the world, I believe, have been taught that we need to think only positively about ourselves. That is, we need to ignore all the bad thoughts that come up from within about ourselves or all the bad thoughts that people might have of us, and we need to focus only on the good, right? It's the power of positive thinking. And when it comes to God, we've been taught just focus on his love, just focus on all the promises of how wonderful he's going to make your life and how great it will be. So this has a big impact on our Christian faith. Has a big impact on the way that we look at the gospel, right? We want the good news of the gospel of Christ, but we're quite happy to forget and ignore the bad news. The bad news that makes it good news. So today, in the application section of this sermon, I want to reflect with all of you on why it's vital, vital to our spiritual health, and why it's vital to our own happiness in God, in Christ, to walk with Paul through these dark valleys of our sin, of humanity's rebellion against God, and of his wrathful judgment. But before that, we have to go We have one more weighty sermon in these heavy texts. So we're going to look at Romans 3, 9 through 20, which we just read. Now I break this passage into three parts. We'll go through each in turn. So verse 9 is sort of the statement that then I believe the next two sections are the grounds for. So verses 9b through 18 and then 19 through 20. So first off, verse 9, let me read it again. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So Paul begins this passage with two questions, and these are the last two questions in a series of questions that he began to ask at the start of chapter three, which Hunter preached on last week. And it's Paul's second question here in verse nine, And his quick reply that I believe is the main point of this passage. And that is that Jews are not better off than Gentiles. And so in the rest of the passage, from 9 all the way to 20, he's giving reasons for why the Jews are not better off. Now, as Paul says in verse 9, he's already made this point earlier in his letter, right? He's already charged that both Greeks... And Jews are sinners. And now remember, this language brings us into the courtroom. Paul is playing the role of a prosecuting attorney. And as an apostle of God, he's been arguing the case that every single one of us is a sinner and liable to judgment. And now in this passage, he's bringing his case to a close. So again, he's already said, that he's, made, he's charged both Jews and Greeks as guilty sinners before God. And let's recap that quickly. Recall Romans 1:18 to 32, right? Paul said that Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, have provoked God to wrath through idolatry. They've turned from the true and living God to worship and serve idols and the creature. And they've also provoked him to wrath, and he's given them over to immorality, to sin, to live lives that they ought not to live and defile themselves. Then Paul went on in Romans chapter 2 to say that Jews are no better than Gentiles, So since even though they have God's law, they actually break it. They do the very same things that the Gentiles do. But I believe here, in this verse, verse 9, Paul adds a little something that is actually quite important. And it's found in that short phrase, under sin. Do you see it? He says that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is something that's easy to quickly read over, but I do think it tells us something significant. What it says is that our problem with sin is far deeper than the fact that we make mistakes from time to time. Right? In other words, we don't just mess up and do bad things every once in a while, but rather we are slaves of sin. Sin, which is rebellion against God and against his law, is a pervasive power in our lives. It has mastery over us. This is what it means to be under sin. So as Paul brings his case to a close regarding our sinfulness, he wants the readers of his letter in Rome to understand this, that sin is not just something they dabble with from time to time here and there, but rather this pervasive power in their lives that controls them and corrupts them thoroughly. Sin is master over us all. So verses 10 through 18. Now we might ask, Paul, where is your basis for arguing this? Now it's likely that Paul's statement was as shocking and offensive 2,000 years ago to his readers as it is to us today, right? Paul's readers, the Jews, likely had no problem agreeing with him about the sins of the Romans and the Greeks. They do a lot of strange things, wicked things, of course. They're sinful. They're wicked. But us, really, the Jews, were God's holy nation. We're the sons, we're the daughters of Abraham. Likewise today, right? We find it very easy to speak about how evil certain people are. And we all have certain people that we pick on. And we can easily speak of the sins of those outside the church. But what if Paul turns to you, to me, and says, you're no better off than they are? How do we feel? How do we react? Well, Paul bases his argument for our absolute sinfulness in Scripture itself. Now, this is actually quite incredible. Paul, who saw the risen Christ and heard from him on the road to Damascus, Paul, who was taken up into the third heaven, into paradise itself, as it says in 2 Corinthians, and he heard things that he could not even speak of, he actually bases his argument, not on some private message from God, but on scripture, on Old Testament scriptures that speak about our complete sinfulness. So look with me closely at verses 10 through 18. And maybe you can see it if it's nicely arranged in your Bible. Paul strings together a whole series of Old Testament passages, one after another. We're going to look at them each in turn. So first, verses 10 through 12. Let me read it again. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Paul here is quoting directly from Psalm 14, a few verses there. And these verses are repeated later in Psalm 53. I want to draw out a few points here. So first, notice that Paul is focused on individuals. He says, no one is righteous. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. So some might quickly read Romans 1 and 2, his earlier statements about the sins of Gentiles and Jews, and think that Paul's making these sort of general statements. Yeah, generally speaking, these people are wicked. And right, it's common to speak this way. We all do it. It's not good. It's wrong, it's sin, we do it. But we often label certain people as rude, impatient, so on and so forth. But Paul, here, I believe, intentionally strings these passages together and quotes them in such a way that we won't miss this important point. And it's this, we as individuals are thoroughly sinful. No one of us is good no one of us is righteous. Second, notice how Paul speaks of our sin. He says four things. We're not righteous. No one is righteous. So here, the idea, right, is that we do not fully and completely keep and uphold God's law. And this word righteous brings us back to the courtroom. We get a lot of courtroom-like language in Romans. It means that we're all lawbreakers. Now, we may not have murdered someone, but we have definitely tried to destroy people through words. We may not have stolen thousands of dollars in our lives, but we have all lied in small ways and big ways to benefit ourselves. This is what it means by how we're unrighteous. Second, Paul says no one understands, right? Here are the ideas we lack, the basic knowledge and understanding of God and His ways that God expects of us. We're made in His image and likeness, and therefore we should have a basic knowledge of Him. But spiritually speaking, as far as it relates to the things of God, we are fools. That's what Paul said back in Romans 1, that we turned from God and our minds and our hearts were darkened. Third, Paul says, No one seeks for God. Our whole lives are dominated with seeking. Seeking money, seeking career, seeking a spouse, seeking family, seeking fun, adventure, rest, so on and so forth. But for all of us, God is never really number one, apart from Spirit's work in our life. So in this way, we do not seek God above all. And fourth, Paul says that no one is good. Our lives lack kindness, helpfulness, generosity towards others. We are selfish, right? We rarely go out of our way to help someone in need if it's going to cost us time and money. right? If it's going to take us away from what we really want to do by ourselves, we aren't willing to do it. So let's take a step back and try to take in what Paul is saying here. And I want to do this by having us take a little test. It's a self-examination. So I'm going to ask you to rate yourself from 1 to 10, 1 being very poor, 10 being exceptional, and how you are in four areas of life. Now, this is just for you. You don't have to share your answer with your neighbor or your spouse. So here we go on a scale from 1 to 10, how righteous are you? Just make a note of it. Second, on a scale from 1 to 10, how faithful are you in seeking God? Third, on a scale from 1 to 10, how understanding are you of God and his ways? And then fourth, on a scale from 1 to 10, how good are you towards others? So calculate your score if you can do math quickly in your head. How did you do? Well, I'm guessing that you probably scored yourself higher in some areas than others, right? But I'm guessing if you're an honest person, you you, know, you didn't get that high of a score. Hopefully, maybe a passing score. Of course, you've already known where I'm going with this the whole time, but Paul is grading our tests. and Actually, God is through his word, and the point is Paul is saying, with God's word as his basis, we're all zeros. We're all zeros in all categories, even less than zero. In the eyes of a holy God, we don't even make it on the scale. Why? Because it says in verse 12, we have all turned aside, we have become worthless. Wow. We are worthless. This is not an easy thing, right, to digest. This is the sort of truth from God's word that turns people away from the Christian faith. And sadly, there are many teachers, preachers all over the world that try to water down what God is saying here. Try to get their way around it. But there's no way to get around it. We must face this tragic reality of who we are in our sin. And that apart from the work of Christ and his spirit, we have no hope at God's judgment seat. And we need to grasp this if we're going to embrace and be changed by the gospel. Now, unfortunately, Paul's not done, right? He goes on quoting more scriptures about how completely and thoroughly sinful we are. So let's look now at verses 13, to 17. And here Paul quotes from more Psalms, as well as from Isaiah. Let me read it. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Now, I see an order, a logic to how Paul arranges and quotes these passages from Scripture. So, first, in verse 13, we have a, our throats. Throats are an open grave. So, the idea is here is if we open our throat and we go down inside, all we find is death. That's what's inside of us. Spiritually speaking, dead bones on the inside. Then... Coming up from the throat, we find the tongue, verse 13, and we use our tongues to form words. But since there's only death inside, the words that we form are lying words. We use our tongues to, u- to form words that deceive others, to hide our true intentions, to hide what's really going on deep in our hearts. We want to make ourselves look, Better than we are. So then, once the words are formed by our tongue, they come off of our lips, out of our mouths, verses 13 and 14. But as they come out, it's like poison being spit out by a snake. What comes out of our mouths is cursing and bitterness. It's poison, spiritually speaking, to those around us and deadly. Now, the problem is not just with our throat, our tongue, our mouths. The problem's also with our feet. You can see it there. We use our feet to run after other people. And we travel around with our feet not to bless and serve others in love, but to tear down and destroy. So again, I think we need to take a moment, step back and try to take in what Paul is saying. There's a lot to process here. And I imagine the question is probably in your mind, something like this, really, Paul? Are we really that bad? Perhaps you're thinking, I haven't killed anyone. I don't curse people out, at least not that often. Is Paul really speaking about all of us as individuals? I think the answer is yes. That's what Paul is saying. God is saying through his prophets and now the Apostle Paul that at, our, at his judgment seat we are thoroughly sinful, evil, and corrupt, left to ourselves, apart from Christ. So if you're struggling to agree with Paul and God's word at this point, I have one thing that I can say that might be of some help. I believe that the reason for why this is so hard for us to grasp is because we are all looking at it from the wrong perspective, right? That is, as human beings, we usually view everything from the horizontal and not the vertical. What do I mean? I mean that we look at everything from the human point of view and not from God's point of view. And this brings us back to the core of our sin problem, which Paul talked about back in Romans 1.25. He says, we all have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, the problem is that when it comes to evaluating ourselves, we're just comparing ourselves to those around us or in some other part of the world. We aren't considering just how unrighteous we are before a perfectly righteous God. We don't consider how mean and cruel we are in comparison to a God who is infinite and overflowing in abundant goodness. We don't consider our little white lies in comparison to his flawless truth. Simply put, we don't consider God and his ways. And therefore, our perspective, our judgment is all off. And this is what Paul says in verse 18. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So we only fear men, humans, not God. And therefore, what we're mostly scared of, really what we're only scared of, is that we don't get caught and feel shamed before other people, right? We're mostly scared that we don't get caught in our, fa- in our families or at work or by the government and get punished by them. We very rarely, if ever, think about God in his judgment. So our willful rejection of God, our deliberate turn from his ways, has resulted in us becoming not only morally, spiritually worthless before him, but it's drained the fear of God right out of us. And it's impossible for us, apart from the Spirit, to really see and evaluate ourselves and just how Fallen we are. So verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So we turn now here to these last two verses of of this passage before us today. But actually, it's not just the conclusion to the point he made in verse 9, that Jews are no better than Gentiles. It's actually the conclusion all the way back from Romans 1.18. In his case, that we are all sinful before God and liable to judgment. So Paul, having quoted all these Old Testament verses, 10 to 18, He now sums up and says that all of scripture, this scripture was written in order to close our mouths, to shut our mouths before God. So one of God's purposes in giving us his word, that's holy scripture, is to bring our sinfulness to light before him. As it says in verse 20, right? Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the implication is this. God's word not only declares to us his amazing, abundant, saving grace in Christ in the gospel, which we're going to hear a lot more about for chapter 3 all the way to chapter 8. Keep holding on. But God's word also declares to us our sinfulness. And it t- tells us about God's coming judgment. See, God's word both brings us low the threat of judgment, and lifts us high with the promise of salvation. It does both at one and the same time. It reveals sin, it condemns it, but then God's word, the word of Christ, comes and tells us that you can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So Paul here rests his case. We are left silenced before God. His word is true, and we are liars. He is perfectly righteous and good, we are not. We stand undone before Him. We're without excuse. And just in case we think wrongly that maybe some good works in our lives, maybe some religious deeds or some humanitarian efforts can help us, Paul says in verse 20 that by works no human being will be justified in his sight. Our mouths are closed. So application. As I said, after these heavy, heavy verses, I want to close this message by thinking about why this bad news, with God's help, by his grace, can turn to good news. And why it's good to reflect deeply on our sin and God's judgment. And remember, we're thinking about ourselves as individuals. So first, this knowledge of our sin and the reality of God's judgment humbles us. That doesn't sound like good news right away, does it? No one likes to be humbled. It's not fun, but being humbled is the starting point of finding salvation. And we can see this from the book of James. Let me read. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So to receive the grace of God in Christ, we must first be humbled. This is what God, God, through Paul, is doing in Romans 1, 2, and 3. He's revealing sin, he's breaking us down, he's humbling us, but it's so that we are ready to receive the amazing, free grace of God in Christ. So one practical implication of this, for you, for me, is to recognize that God brings us into seasons of our life where we see and feel our sin very deeply. And in such seasons of life, God is humbling us, right? And we need to not resist him, but rather let his humbling work drive us to Christ and to his grace that is abounding. Insufficient. Secondly, how this bad news can turn to good news. Knowing how great of sinners we are, how deserving we are of judgment, increases our love for Jesus. Now, I take this second point right from a story of Jesus. And the story is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. It's at the end, and I encourage you to read it later on. And Luke records this beautiful story of a time that Jesus was invited by a religious leader to his house for a meal. It says that Jesus went to this man's house and he sat down and right after arriving, what Luke calls a woman of the city, a sinner comes through the door carrying a flask of ointment and she falls at Jesus' feet and begins to weep. And after she falls at Jesus' feet she begins to wet and wipe and anoint Jesus' feet and kiss them continually as he sat for his meal and talked with his host. Well, the religious leader was deeply bothered by such a woman coming into his house. He's a religious person. It's a shame to him. But he's even more bothered by Jesus and the way that Jesus seems to welcome her right at his feet, doesn't send her away. And Jesus is bothered by the religious leader, bothered by his attitude towards the woman. And so he says, since I've come into your house, you didn't give me a kiss, you didn't wash my feet, you didn't anoint my head with oil, but this sinful woman has not ceased to kiss my feet, to wash them, to anoint them with her tears and with the ointment. And why is this, according to Jesus because she knew how great her sins were, but she knew even more how great of a Savior Jesus is. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. So The point is this, the more we grasp our complete sinfulness, our hopelessness before God and judgment, the more we'll come to Jesus and our love for him will grow. We'll grasp how great of a sacrifice he made for us at the cross. And the bad news turns to good news. We love Jesus all the more. And last point, knowing how great a sinners we are and every single person here in this room and your family around you, knowing how we're all hopeless before God, should and will make us more gracious, patient towards others as we grasp the gospel, right? If there's anything that tells us just how little we really grasp our sin and the good news of the gospel, it's the way that we treat the people around us. But the more we grasp our desperate state, our need for Christ, the more that we turn to Jesus, the more we'll also be gracious, kind, forgiving towards those around us. And that's the mark that we really have grasped, not only the bad news, but the good news. So let me close us with prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that both humbles us and brings us low Lord, help us to take in these hard truths about who we are in our sins and before you, a holy God. But Father, I pray that we wouldn't just stay there in our sin and looking inside, but Lord, help us to turn ourselves, to turn our gaze outward, to look to Christ, to look to his cross, to look to the gospel And help us to receive afresh, even tonight, this abounding, overflowing grace of Christ. And Lord, increase our love for Jesus. Increase our love for those around us. We ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.